Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here this morning. Good morning to everyone up in Port Perry, everyone meeting this evening in Bowmanville, and anyone watching in and around the world. We're so glad that you're joining us this morning. I don't know if you've ever had the chance to travel, whether by airplane or by car or by train, but when you're about to travel to go away to escape, you know how much work it takes to get ready to relax. You have to get tickets and you have to buy things and if you have children, you have to pack for them and you do all of this work so when you arrive, you actually can relax. The work leading up to the travel experience is intense. It's the same if you're going to have an anniversary or a birthday party. There's evites and there's food and there's cooking and there's organization and then hopefully when the party happens, it's great. Well, that's the image I would like in everyone's mind across all of C4 and beyond because that is what we are going to be doing over the next three weeks as we prepare for the greatest celebration on earth as we get ready to celebrate Easter. Now, let's begin this way as we start. If you open the Gospels, whether you're a seeker, a hardcore skeptic, a brand new Christian, or a long-term follower of Christ, and you just listen simply to what Jesus declares, it is shocking. Jesus as a human being says that he is equal to God. Then Jesus has the audacity to say he is God. He says that he has the power to expunge every wicked act done by every human being in all of history. He actually claims he has the ability to forgive sins. He said these crazy things like he existed before he was born. He claims to be the only way back to God. He promises eternal life, and then supposedly he is physically risen from the dead. Now, unlike all other great figures in history, both good and evil, Jesus paired these crazy, outrageous, audacious claims with humility, with love, with care, and he actually participated in barrier breaking in a way we have never seen in all of history. See, you cannot remain neutral on Jesus, his teachings, his claims, or his reality. Now, if Jesus physically did not rise from the dead, then we might declare him to be a pretty good man, maybe a profound prophet, maybe a man before his time, a political revolutionary, or maybe you would even declare him the most profound religious influence in history. Maybe he just got murdered for standing up against the establishment, or as C.S. Lewis brilliantly wrote so long ago, maybe he's the best liar in history, maybe he was clinically insane, or maybe something much more dark as afoot, maybe he was evil. But if Jesus actually physically did raise from the dead, everything changes. Tim Keller from New York simply said once, if Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept everything he ever said. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, why worry about anything that he said? I said this two years ago at Easter. If Jesus is risen from the dead, atheism is resolved, period. 
If Jesus rose from the dead, agnosticism is answered. If Jesus rose from the dead, every religion on earth and every philosophy would have to change and reevaluate itself at its very fundamental core. If Jesus rose from the dead, death is now answered finally, and we know what lies beyond beyond the grave because someone went there and came back and told us what is on the other side. If Jesus rose from the dead, the human family does not need to ask who God is. Is he involved? What is he like? If Jesus rose from the dead, then we as humans can actually meet God. If Jesus rose from the dead, there's purpose in your life more than travel, entertainment, money, sex, power, being moral, or even religious. If Jesus physically rose from the dead, then the coffin or the cremation fire that none of us like thinking about but all of us will face is not the end of you. Now in our culture, not like all cultures, but in our culture in the West at least, we try to make death natural looking When there's an open casket in a funeral, we try to make our loved ones look like they did, even though we now know they are not there. So let me just state this as we get ready for Easter. Death now might be normal for human beings, but death is absolutely not natural. Humans were never supposed to die. That is why death is so painful, so scary, so fear-invoking. See, death is judgment. Death is a result of rebellion and willful abandonment by us towards God. But see, that is actually not the end of the story. As one great German theologian once said, resurrection means the worst thing is never the last thing. Now in four weeks, we're going to gather across all of our sites and we're going to join the global church, meaning in cathedrals and and in house churches and in medium-sized churches and even churches that meet outside and in homes And we are going to celebrate and we're going to confirm that Jesus physically rose from the dead. So to prepare for that greatest of celebrations, that most epic of parties, we now arrive at the end of 1 Corinthians. And we're going to hang out in chapter 15 for two weeks. Where Paul actually writes out what what actually happened around the resurrection. And by the end of the next two weeks and the week after that, we will be able, whether you're a seeker, skeptic, or Christian, you will be able to walk into Easter ready, filled with understanding, thankfulness, life, hope, and genuine expectation. Now, what I'm about to preach is critically important. And some of you who have grown up in church, even though you have grown up in church, still have not embraced or understood the fundamental essence of our movement. So this, though it's a time change in March break, I'm begging everyone to lean in, and especially this service. You already slept in. You have no excuses. 1 Corinthians 15.1 reads like this. Now, my brothers and my sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I've preached to you, to which you've received and on which you've already taken your stand. By this gospel, you've been saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you as first importance, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he says to this very dysfunctional, broken church 2,000 years ago, meeting in Corinth, you are saved already in right relationship with God because you've already believed the gospel, the good news. And what's the good news? Jesus has died for the sins of the world. Every single one of us are made in the image of God and we're made to have relationship with God. But we were never supposed to take his place. We cannot handle deification 
And yet from Adam and Eve onward, once we rebelled and declared that God had no right in our life, we actually became, the Bible pulls no punches, fallen, sinful, under just wrath, dead, spiritually, supernaturally blind. And the Bible says that every human being, whether moral, religious, spiritual, or atheistic, is actually in slavery to sin, which means I cannot but help sin. We are owned by Satan, whether you believe in him or not, and we will all die. Go in peace. No, that's actually not the end of the story. Then there is good news. We believe that Jesus has overcome all of this by his birth, by his ministry, by his miracles, by his life, by his death, and his physical resurrection and ascension. We believe, and many of us within this community have experienced that when we finally admitted we were sinful, step one, when we called out to Jesus the only way back home, when we humbled ourselves before Jesus, when we put our hand out, Jesus was there and overcame everything that is and will be a barrier between us and God. Jesus Jesus died for our sins. But it's not just like he paid off a mortgage we could never ever repay and then he died too. It's not like he went to jail for us and never got out. No, no. The gospel doesn't just say he takes our rightful punishment. It says that Jesus was buried and he was raised on the third day. Jesus did not stay dead. Now, don't misunderstand this. Like every other human being who has ever existed who has died, he actually comes back. What does that mean? Is this like a 15 second on the operating table, I saw a light and came back? No. Is this some form of scam? Absolutely not. Is this sort of like someone who's on machines and kept alive by a medical miracle? No. This person, Jesus from Nazareth, was dead. Three days. Dead, dead, dead. Corpse. And then came back to life. And Paul says this is a historical event. This is not fabrication or myth. Our faith is rooted in actual history. Jesus was crucified under Roman rule, died, descended to the dead, had the same fate all humans have and will have, but unlike everyone else, he came back to life. And Paul says, I know this is true, not because I heard a story and it was fanciful. I actually interviewed everyone who was there. 1 Corinthians 5.15, Jesus appeared to Peter. And then to the 12, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of our brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some now have died. Do you see it? The Christian faith is the foundation, and the foundation of the Christian faith is rooted in testimony. People saying, I was there, it's not fairy tale, it's not myth, it's not fake news, it's real. Now most scholars will tell you that most people believe that Paul interviewed all these people three years after he himself had his encounter with Jesus. That means within two to eight years of Jesus's literal crucifixion, Paul is meeting all these people from all these backgrounds and he's interviewing them. Now, if you've ever studied history at university, you will know what I just said is so massive because the closer the testimonies are to the original event, the less time there is for myth and fabrication. And if you actually study history academically, there are very few historical events where I witnesses are interviewed, interviewed that close to the scene. Tim Keller in his great book, The Reason for God, summarizes this conversation. He says, in the landmark book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, Richard Buckingham marshals so much historical evidence to demonstrate that at the time the Gospels were being written, there were numerous well-known living eyewitnesses to Jesus' teaching and life. They committed them to memory. They remained active in the public life of the churches throughout their lifetime, serving as ongoing sources of truth. Buckingham uses evidence within the Gospels to show how the Gospel writers named their eyewitnesses on purpose to assure the reader that this was true. 
For example, in the book of Mark, there's a man who helped Jesus carry his cross to Calvary. And Mark very specifically says in Mark 15, 21, and this person was the father of Alexander and Rufus. There is no reason for an author to put in such names unless the readers could know or have access to the witness. Here's what Mark was saying 2,000 years ago. Alexander and Rufus will vouch for the truth, I'm telling you. If you're interested, walk over and ask them. They're right there. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 does the same. He says, look, I've talked to these eyewitnesses, and he refers to this 500 witnesses who witnessed the risen Christ. And this is what he writes. You can't write this in a document that was designed for public reading unless there were real surviving witnesses whose testimony agreed and could confirm what the author was saying. All of this decisively refutes all the stuff you're going to find in chapters that says that the Gospels are incredibly old and they're collections of evolving oral tradition. No, no, they are oral traditions or histories taken down from the mouth of living eyewitnesses who preserved the words of Jesus. And never forget this. Be honest about the struggle. Jesus' supporters were not just alive at this moment. So were all the bystanders and officials and opponents who saw Jesus teach, saw his actions, and watched him die. And they would have been especially ready to challenge any account that had been fabricated. Then he writes this. For a highly altered, fictionalized lie, an account of an event to take hold in the public imagination, it is necessary that the eyewitnesses, oh, and their children and their grandchildren all belong dead. They must be off the scene so they cannot contradict or debunk the embellishments or falsehoods of the story. But the Gospels and also Paul's writings were written far too soon for this to happen. See, that is why Paul keeps connecting the Easter story and the resurrection of Jesus, the ultimate truth of our faith, with accessible living witnesses. Now, we, we found this out two years ago, but let me do this again. He does the next step, which is so profound, in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. He says, then Jesus appeared to James and then to all the other apostles. Now you say, oh, what's the big deal about that? Well, number one, James is the guy that wrote the book of James in your Bible, if you have one. He's a major church leader. But that's not the beginning of the story, and that's not the end of the story. James is Jesus' half-brother. He's one of Mary and Joseph's kids. Later, we read in Acts 15, he becomes the leader in the Jerusalem church. But this was not the whole story. See, he actually didn't like his brother at all. What's new between brothers? Deeper than that, he hated his half-brother. What does Mark say in Mark 5, uh, 3, 21? When Jesus started teaching, he said his family heard this, and they went to go take charge of him because they said Jesus was out of his mind. Jesus' brothers and sisters thought he was clinically unhinged. James and his family thought he should be institutionalized. It says in Mark 6, 1, Jesus left there and went back to his hometown. He starts teaching. And how does his hometown who knew him react? They say, well, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this one of Mary's sons and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. James and his family did not believe in Jesus. They were not seekers. They thought he was crazy, a liar, or demon-possessed. They were angry at him and wanted to shut him down. He's a danger to himself, and he's ruining our reputation. (coughs) That's who James is. So after Jesus' life, and Jesus' miracles, and after Jesus' death, and after Jesus' resurrection, only then does Jesus' half-brother, who actually hated his brother, say, you know what? 
he's the Messiah, the Son of God. Why? Because he would say that he met his tortured brother who had been crucified by Romans in a public way, physically alive, and hung out with him, ate with him, and was with him. Only when he met his dead brother alive did he believe. Now we know from Christian and non-Christian sources, James ends up being murdered for being a follower of his brother. He moves from enemy to cynic to skeptic to doubter to believer to the leader at the center of our movement. Here's the question, why? Because someone lied really well to him? Because the story was so awesome that he suddenly believed it? No, no, because there was such good benefits for being a Christian leader 2,000 years ago. Oh no, right, you ended up in jail and got murdered. Why did James become a Christian? Because he met his resurrected brother. There is no other historical explanation for this. And then Paul says, oh, it's not just James. It's me. He says, at last he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. I'm the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I actually persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I work harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you've believed. And Paul says, oh, you want to know my story? I was spiritually born abnormal. Actually, the Greek reads, I was miscarried spiritually. You're like, well, why? Well, you know his history, many of you. He wasn't always called Paul. He was Saul of Tarsus. If you were comparing him to other fields, he would be like a Pulitzer Prize writer or an Olympian in sports. But he is profound in his area of religion. He's not only just Jewish, he's educated as a Roman citizen, grew up in Tarsus, a major cosmopolitan center. He spoke and wrote in multiple languages. He would have the equivalent between one and two PhDs, and he studied under a man named Gamaliel, who still today in Jewish Orthodox circles is considered one of the best Jewish minds ever to be produced out of Judaism. And Saul of Tarsus, as we know Paul, was his personal understudy. And Saul hated Christians. Saul was there when Stephen, the very first Christian, was murdered for preaching Jesus and gave approval. Saul was going house to house, dragging boys and girls and men and women and throwing them in jail. And as he was taking his religious war on the road to Damascus, it says in Acts 9.3, and Saul neared Damascus on his journey and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and Saul fell to the ground and a voice said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And in that moment, Saul becomes Paul and becomes one of the greatest thinkers in Christianity. Why the change? Because suddenly there was a great intellectual debate and someone else won it? Because there were better facts? Because there's a great advantage for being a Christian? Oh no, this is the guy throwing Christians into jail. No, he's easily gullible. I don't think so. He's mentally unstable. That's not even in his psychological profile. No, this is what Paul says. I encountered the risen Jesus Christ and I cannot deny it anymore. He is who he is. And now, here's the wild thing, 25 years after the crucifixion, that's all it is, Paul is now writing 1 Corinthians. 25 years, that's it. And he says these words in 1 Corinthians, if Christ is preached, but if it, sorry, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Jesus has not been raised, well, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More, more than that, if we were found, we'd be found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he's raised Jesus from the dead. And if he did not raise him, in fact, then the dead, they're not even raised. 
And if the dead are not raised, then Jesus hasn't been raised either. And if Jesus has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And then those who've died in Jesus are already lost. If only for this life we have hope in Jesus, we of all people should be most pitied. So this is what he says. If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, the whole Christian faith is in vain. Paul's a liar. I'm a liar. Every pastor and leader is a liar. The hope of the new heavens and the new earth are empty. There's no guarantees for you at all. All the family that you love who are dead will be lost forever. You'll never see them again. Your personal faith is nothing. All the encounters of God that you claim that happened in your life are either invented or psychological or invented or evil. Knowing God is out the window, we still all need salvation, even if that's a thing. All future hope is now lost, and everything you you've done for Jesus, all your giving at church, all your serving the poor, giving up your time and money, even denying things that you want that God calls sinful is all actually a waste of time because there's no eternal life. So actually, why in the world are you even in church today? It's an all or nothing game. One theologian said, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. If Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. Can I say that again? If Christ is risen, nothing else matters. If Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. Now, I want you to catch this. We unashamedly root ourselves in history and declare that the resurrection of Jesus is not a myth. And why are we not afraid of criticism as Christians? And why are we not afraid of history? Because actually the resurrection is a provable, knowable, historical event. Two years ago when we were doing that series called Smoke and Mirrors, I told you the story that late at night I was watching a YouTube debate between uh, John Lennox, who's a famed philosopher mathematician at Oxford, and he was facing down Richard Dawkins, the famed biological atheist. And back and forth they went, is there God? And what's the purpose of humanity? And is there value in life? And what of eternal life? And just like lightning in the moment, John Lennox, in the most gracious of ways, just turned and said, Mr. Dawkins, they're what, he said this, Mr. Dawkins, what you do not understand is that actually you have no respect for history. And since you have no respect for history, you will never understand the truth that Jesus is risen from the dead. What do you do, Mr. Dawkins, with the resurrection of Jesus? What do you do with all the historical facts? And Mr. Dawkins could say nothing. Why? Because Richard Dawkins and scientism as an idea teaches, if I cannot repeat it in a lab, it is not true. That is not the only way you access truth. History also is truth. And John Lennox said, see, you can't answer me about the resurrection because you haven't even done your homework about the resurrection. But deeper than that, you have not engaged. So then he says, Jesus has risen from the dead. And then Paul comes along and says, I'm a witness to this. Jesus indeed has been raised from the dead. And the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, Jesus has come back to life. Death has been conquered, and he's the first fruit. Now, I'm no farmer, as you can tell. But what I know about first fruits is this. They are the first beginnings of a harvest. And if the first fruits are good, then the harvest will be good. If the first fruits are bad, then the harvest will be bad. And here's what Paul is saying, which is so brilliant. Jesus' physical resurrection, he is the first fruit. And so everyone who trusts in Jesus will have the same style of resurrection as he had. New body, new life, not being tainted by death or sin, absolute eternal life. So this is what he's saying. Our past and our current present and our future is settled our hope is grounded in history, in heaven, and also in our hearts. Now, at this moment, Paul does something that none of us really like to talk about. Many of you, again, who have grown up in church, even you who love Jesus, still will be deeply offended by these next words. 
For since death came through one man, the resurrection of the dead comes through one man. For as in Adam all die, so in Jesus all will be made alive. Now, these two verses are foundational to everything we're going to prepare to talk about at Easter. I mean, if you're a Christian or seeking this, like this, this, you've got to get this. This is so critical. So this outlines the trouble we're in and the answer. So some of you are always asking, well, how in the world is it my fault that Adam and Eve were so bad that they messed up? I would have made a better decision. Right? No, because I've been taught my whole life, I'm in charge and no one makes decisions for me. Thank you very much. Okay. We need to work through this. It was R.C. Sproul, who's just died, who I enjoyed and disagreed with and agreed with, and heaven will see who's right. But he got this right when he said these words. Adam acted as a representative of the entire human race. The test that God set before Adam and Eve, he was testing actually all of us. Adam's name means humanity, mankind. Adam was the first human being created. He stands at the head of all of us, the human race. He was placed in the garden, not only just to act for himself, but for all future descendants. Just as the federal government has a chief spokesperson who's the head of that nation, so Adam is the federal head of all of us. And and this is the idea. When Adam sinned, he sinned for all of us. His fall is our fall, our fall is his fall, and when God punished Adam by taking away original righteousness, we also all were likewise punished. Now you bristle at this, and you say, that's not fair. And that's not right, because I've been taught my whole life, I will determine who I am, and and I have the right... No, that might be true with jobs or life, but it's not true with sin, separation, and salvation. There are three things that happened when Adam fell. The first of all, he gave us a terrible example, and yet we've all imitated it. That's number one. Number two, there's not just imitation, there's actually this thing called infection. Every human being since that moment has been born with what we call original sin. It was Augustine who said these words, Adam's condition before the fall made it possible not to sin, but after the fall, Adam and all of us with him fell into the condition making it not possible for us not to sin. So we, first and foremost, are imitating Adam. Every one of us has done it. And also, we're infected just like he was. And third of all, we're included in him. But that's not the end of the story. Adam failed at his job, but God so loved the world, he sent a better Adam, the best Adam. And his name is who? Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so in Jesus all will be made alive. Do you see the love and the profundity of our faith and the love of God towards us? Now, some of you are reading that and going, oh, hold on a second. So if everyone fell in Adam and everyone actually is in Jesus, does that mean everyone gets saved? We're universalists. Everyone comes to faith. It doesn't matter what I do. No, no, keep reading, verse 23. But each in turn, Jesus the first fruit, then he, when he comes, those who belong to him. What does the Bible explicitly say? To belong to the second Adam, to get the benefits of the second Adam, you must accept the second Adam. Now, at this moment, as he's working at all this theology and resurrection and implications, then he goes on this writing tyrant about good things. And I hope at least there's one amen by the end of this. He says, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to, the, uh, to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he's put all enemies under his foot. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Ready for this? There's never going to be a funeral ever again. For he's put everything under his foot. Now when it says everything that has been put under him, it is clear this does not include God himself, who put everything under Jesus. 
When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. So what was started on Easter Sunday, what was established in the new heavens, sorry, in the heavens right now, what is being worked out day in and day out on earth is this. Everything is under and will be under Jesus' feet. Satan, every demon, every dominion, every authority, death itself, every human being you've ever met, every human being you've read about, everyone, every leader, every politician, every philosopher, everyone is going to face Jesus, be under Jesus, and every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. Whether they want to or not, they will do it because he is who he claims to be. So he says, this is the truth or the implication of the resurrection. And then Paul comes back and says, so I'm completely confused. How are some of you as Christians saying the resurrection didn't happen? He says in verse 29, now if there's no resurrection, well, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? And if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptizing for them? And you're going, hold on, John, baptizing for the dead? Is this a cult? What cray cray is going on? And here's the answer, we don't know. So there you go, go in peace. I have no clue. Here's what we do know. It seems, scholars say, that some people were so concerned about those relatives who had died without Jesus, they were proxy-baptizing them. And Paul isn't saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'd suggest not so good. I think this is what Paul's saying. Why in the world did you even do that and, and not believe in the resurrection at the same time? But then he goes a step farther. And by the way, this is when everyone needs to lean in. Then he says, and oh, by the way, why would any of you suffer for Jesus? Why would you ever deny yourself? Like, why would you ever change habits connected, money, sex, power, or thinking if, any, if the resurrection isn't true? He said, like, for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I mean, I face death every day. Yes, just as surely I'm about to boast in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we what? We die. I mean, what are we left with? All our suffering for Jesus is, it's like incredibly stupid. So listen, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, let's just go eat and drink because we're only left with survival and then we're all going to die. So let's just do as much as we can in this life, good and bad. Let's indulge, let's eat more, let's have more sexual experiences. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. Let's get as much money as you can if you can work it out. Lie, cheat, steal. Why don't you travel more? Let's have every experience. Pack everything you can, even good things with parents and grandparents and kids. Put it all in because this is all we've got, right? Anthony Hopkins, great actor, once said these words. None of us are getting out of here alive. So stop treating yourself like an afterthought. Eat delicious food, walk in the sunshine, jump in the ocean, be silly, be kind, be weird. There's no time for anything else. Now, when I read that, I love that quote and I hate it. I love it because actually a lot of Christians need to learn from Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, eat the good food. It's okay. Jump in the ocean. Be weird. We're good with that. Walk in the sunshine. And oh, by the way, you're not an afterthought. Don't look down on yourself. But no, Anthony Hopkins. No, Sir Hopkins, you're wrong. We are getting out of here alive. And there isn't just this life. There's a new heavens and a new earth coming. So actually, here's the connection. Your view of the resurrection directly affects how you choose to live this life. If you think this is it, you'll do as much as you can to get in. But if this is not the whole conversation, and Jesus is alive, and he's going to come back, and we're going to be made live, then we actually have to live a different life because we know that actually this isn't the end. This isn't the end. So then Paul does this really scary thing where he says, you want to know if you believe in the resurrection? You really want to know? Fine. Bad company corrupts good character. 
Come back to your senses as a Christian as you ought and stop what? Sinning. For there are some who are ignorant from God, and I say this to your shame. Here's what he says. If you actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and you actually believe you're going to come back from the dead, and you believe you're going to give an account to God, then you will live a fundamentally holy life because you know this is not the end. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 6 talking about sex. When he says the body is actually meant not for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Why would you not get it on with anything you want? Unless Jesus is coming back. For real. Here's why. Because we actually know that resurrection is too true. And Jesus says that when he raises us from the dead, we will give an account. So Paul says, you don't just get to walk around and say, well, you know, I get, grace covers everything. And the body doesn't really matter because resurrection is a spiritual thing. No, it's not. We are physically coming back from the dead because Jesus physically came back from the dead. And so we live lives with money and sex and power and relationships differently because we know that our bodies are literally already connected to his body and his body is connected to our body and we want to honor him now because we know what lasts in that place we want to demonstrate in this place. So the resurrection is the jugular of our faith. It's the heartbeat of our faith. It's the hope that we have. It's rooted in history. It is central. It is everything and it is deeply personal. It is hope giving. It is hope assuring. It is hope establishing. And Paul simply points out the resurrection of Jesus is a fact. And there are consequences to your rejection, your accepting of this truth. Now, if you're a seeker here or a skeptic, maybe you are spiritual. Maybe you have the name Christian, but you know, or maybe actually you're a Muslim or a Hindu or a Wiccan witch. Whatever you might be, you're most welcome, sincerely. But hear this this morning. This is so critical. If Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept everything he says. If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, you can ignore him completely. So what do you do in your process? Well, number one, some of you still might have questions. Some of you might really say, you know what, I really want to understand. And let me challenge you. In this culture with so much information on Google and Wikipedia, so many people think they're wise. They're not. If you're sincerely seeking, do your homework for real. Don't just say, I read a Google post. No, 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 no. If you sincerely are seeking and you want to know, is the resurrection of Jesus truth? Is it a mass hallucination? Is it the biggest lie in history? Did people, for, like, do your homework, do your homework, do your homework, and find out, because you will be shocked how significant the body of facts are around the death and resurrection of Jesus. Two years ago at Easter, I did this series called Smoke and Mirrors. Can an intellectually informed person actually believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? If you've never listened to it, go on our app, go on our website, go on YouTube, and watch it and begin to struggle. I even mentioned books in that. Go above and beyond and do that. Now, for others of you who are seekers or skeptics, as I've been speaking today, you have been moving from skepticism to seeking to faith, and you're incredibly nervous right now. It's okay, don't be nervous. See, the resurrection changes everything. And this is what God, God's talking to you right now. I'm not God, I just work for the guy. But he is speaking to you. And Jesus is saying to you, I am who I am and I am alive. And he is calling some of you right now in this space and other spaces and someone online and he's saying, you do what those first people did. You do what my half-brother did. You do what Saul of Tarsus did. You do what that 500 do. You, you say yes to me. And right when you say yes to him, there's, here's what's going to happen. Jesus takes your place. Sin will not define you. You say, what does that mean, John? Everything you've ever done against yourself, others or God, will be forgiven, period. 
Death will not own you. When you die, that's not the end. Satan won't hold you. Life will be marked by worship and joy and hope. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be pretty. But the same power that rose Jesus from the dead will be in you, and you will be given something that is actually way more profound than happiness. It's joy. And not just will you be given joy, you will be given hope. So this is what God is saying to some of you right now. Trust in Jesus Christ. Repent in front of Jesus Christ. Turn to Jesus Christ. Receive Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus Christ. Confess Jesus Christ. Ask him even at this moment who you are as you're freaking out. Open my mind so I can believe. This is what you need to pray. Writing to another church, Paul again, this one who used to hate us and imprison us and kill us, who became a follower of Christ when he encountered Jesus, said, well, how do you cross the line of faith? And he says, it's simple. He says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, notice the connection, that God has raised him from the, physically from the dead, oh, you'll be saved. Anyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Could we do this across this whole site, across all of our sites? Could everyone bow their heads? And if you are that person who's moving from skepticism and seeking to encounter, just pray this. You say, dear Lord Jesus, I, I know I am a sinner. I realize it more than I ever have before. I ask for your forgiveness, Jesus Christ. I, I believe you died for my sins and actually believe you physically rose from the dead. So I'm done running my own life and I now ask you to run it. I confess you now as my Lord, King. I invite you to come into my heart and my life. I trust you and I follow you now as Lord and friend and Savior. Give me eternal life. I want hope beyond death. I want hope in this life too. In Jesus' name. And we all sit together. Amen. Many of us are gathering and we are followers of Christ. And as we're preparing for this most epic of parties called Easter, and I hope you're bringing your party, by the way, in four weeks. We're expecting it. I want to remind you something. We live in a dangerous, fracturing, fraught world. And here's what I just want to remind everyone as we prepare. I want to declare this to you today. 1 Corinthians 6, 14 says this. By his power, God raised Jesus from the dead, and he will raise us also. I just want you to see that again. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he's going to raise us also. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves something. And you know what it proves? You actually matter as a human being. Buddhism says that you don't matter because in the end your personality will become nothingness in the universe in nirvana. No, no, no. Christianity fundamentally affirms not only human value, affirms your personal value. My kids were talking to me the other day about heaven and trying to work it out, which is always fun. And in the conversation, one of my daughters said, will I know you? I'm like, yes. And I will know you, Emma Shiloh Thompson. Because God cares about people and persons. And Christianity affirms that we have been stamped, our bodies have been stamped for resurrection. And God values who you are and your name, and your name will ripple into eternity because of what Jesus, the great second Adam, has done on your behalf. You will be raised from the dead. Think about the day we will never say goodbye to anyone ever again. 
there will never be a coffin ever again. There will never be a hospital visit ever again. Why? Because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and he has stamped your body when he put the Spirit of God into you to be raised also. That is the hope and that is the truth of our great faith. Or as N.T. Wright so beautifully said, the message of the resurrection says that the world, not just heaven, the world matters. And when Jesus comes back, he's not just going to raise us from the dead. He's going to make all creation right and pollution's going to go away and drug dealing's going to go away and mobs are going to go away and corrupt governments are going to go away because he's going to make everything right in the end. And that is assured for one thing because we believe in a lie because we're gullible. No, when Jesus walked out of that tomb that we will celebrate in four weeks, that was the declaration. The devil lost, sin was over, and death would never win again. We declare in this church in preparation for Easter, Jesus is raised from the dead and we also will be raised with him. That's the truth. Amen? Amen. And amen. Let's give our God a hand this morning for his great and merciful work among us. It's so good. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for who you are and what you're doing. We celebrate this now. All praise be to God, the Father who called us. All praise be to God, the Son, who actually was that and is that second Adam. And praise be to the Holy Spirit who gives us assurance of resurrection. Amen, amen, and amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.